This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. wasn't like a lot of true crime news that I was following. And then all of a sudden there's 50 things I'm following, which is sort of how it goes, I guess. So there was a shooting at university of Virginia. I saw that it was football players that were killed, right? uh, Yeah, it was was football players. It was like some guy that was like on a class field trip with the victims. And then there was a shooting. I don't know a lot about it yet. Like there's, there's all, I've, like I turned around and there's already a Wikipedia article. I was like, this just happened. But basically three people were killed. Um, they've identified the people that were killed. And there's a suspect who's already been arrested. Um, that was like really strange to me. But the it was Devin Chandler, Deshaun Perry, and Lavelle Davis were the three guys that were killed. And they arrested a guy named Christopher Darnell Jones. Just so strange. Um, he's charged with second degree murder, and um, he's he's got a gun charge uh, using a, a handgun in the, in the commission of a violent felony. Yeah, the gun charges are a lot of times that's what they use to bump up the time on charges. I don't know what happened. I I saw that in my news feed, but um, there wasn't very much to it just yet. But yeah, it was on a lot harder. <laughs> so, so what I heard was that they were there was some kind of class field trip where everybody was going to Washington D.C. to see a play. And this and, is college, right? Yeah, this is college. So it was a class field trip. They come home. I mean, they're all in their twenties. All the victims and the suspect are like twenty to twenty-three years old. I think is the age range. Right. So they had they had come back, and they they were on one of those like uh, you know buses that you take that are semi comfortable, and they have like a little bathroom in the back type buses. Yeah. So a chartered bus basically, and they were parked at the. This is in Charlottesville, Virginia. They were parked at the University of Virginia uh, theater building, like the the drama building, and the shooting took place on the bus. So this is at 10, 15 p.m. on November the 13th. So they issue a shelter-in-place warning, and that carries over to the next day, to about 11 o'clock the next morning. Next, uh, so starts on Sunday night, carries over to Monday, um, and there are you know, multiple law enforcement agencies that are looking for this guy, and someone spotted him out in Henrico County uh, around 11.30 the next morning, and he gets um, he gets arrested. We don't know a lot about that one yet. It just like sort of started happening, and then so there's these updates happening in the background on some of the old missing persons case we've covered cases we've covered. Um, one of those is we didn't cover it that much on here because uh, we were sort of hung up on Summer Wells for a minute. But around the same time, a little boy named Michael Vaughn. Uh, we did mention him on here 
um, uh, he went by Monkey. Do you remember this kid out of Fruitvale, Idaho, I believe? Yeah, I remember him. Because there was um, uh, we were also covering Xavier's case at the same time, who has since been found. But uh, so in the middle of November, they started excavating. And when I say excavating, I mean really excavating um, an entire backyard there in uh, Idaho. Um, and they've arrested someone whose husband is already in jail on other charges. So she was charged with a failure to report a death. They haven't really specified a lot about that yet. I came across... You know, people send me links to stuff all the time. I get different links to, to social media stuff, and I, and I go watch it. YouTube, Twitter, whatever. This one had a really interesting link somebody sent me where it was Michael Vaughn's mom, and she was, like, begging people to stop coming by her house and trying to talk to the suspects and the suspects' families and stuff. And uh, But puts a lot of things in perspective for me. It was, but it, the problem was, so it got sent to me from a YouTube channel that was live from covering that stuff. And I was like, hold on a second. So, and then there was another guy, he was not at the scene, but another YouTuber who was former law enforcement. And he used it as one of those things, like only law enforcement is trained to do these things. We should keep everything secret. And that turned me off. Cause I was like, well, you don't know what you're talking about. I, I I know him in real life, so I get a little annoyed with him. Uh, and then, so so that's an Idaho case, well, Michael Vaughn. Just to be clear, there, like, um, there's a big difference between uh, you know speculating, investigating a case, and um, actually approaching uh, suspects. Yeah, these were people that weren't really, they were like, they were not doing any kind of legwork or investigation or journalism. They were really like, just can think people kind of get obsessed with the attention that comes with true crime cases. Um, a really good example of that is another thing is, is Richard Allen being arrested for the Delphi murders. Because um, we talked about that on the beginning of one of the episodes, but I don't. I don't know if that's going to air before all of this other stuff airs. And like, that's another case where Delphi has had to like kick people out of driveways. And, and the judge even said like the public was bloodthirsty. Um, and they moved that guy, uh, Richard Allen to like safekeeping at a state correctional facility. Yeah. I'm interested to see uh, what ends up being presented there. I have my questions. He, well, he's got multiple lawyers now. He um, sometime in November, I had logged into um, uh, my case, and he suddenly had like uh, several lawyers appointed to him. Um, so I don't know, like what that's going to look like. But there was at least two lawyers, maybe three. That. Yeah, and my case is a resource where you can look up court information. It doesn't have anything to do with you personally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it's like mycase.in.gov or something like that. It, it, usually, you can find a .gov website for almost every state where you can follow along with things that are public in different cases. 
Right. Um, and Sarah, just real quick to swing back around. Uh, we don't know that they found anything, right, with Michael uh, Vaughn? Yeah, nothing has been um, released there. Like, I don't – I that – that was still ongoing. That search was like still going. Right. So they got a credible tip and they're digging up the yard and then we've got uh, some people in custody, but we don't have any information. Yeah. There's at least the, there's a woman in custody that's been arraigned. So her name's been released publicly at this point. Um, all it says is it's a failure to report a death. It's not all linked together, but it's been kind of common sense linked together. Sure. Uh, and then her, I, I guess it's her husband is already awaiting trial on federal charges and some other charges that appear to kind of sprawl over Oregon and Idaho. Um, I don't, somebody said there were sex trafficking. I don't, I've not seen like a lot of solid evidence there. Um, and then adventures with purpose. Have you heard about what happened there? Um, about the uh, allegations of abuse from a family member. Yeah, and that seems to have effectively dismantled Adventures with Purpose after um, one of the founders of that group. Uh, it's not just allegations at this point. It's now become an indictment uh, out of Utah, I think. And it's for it's for charges of sexual abuse. I believe there's a sexual assault charge. I don't know exactly what they are. Um, I saw them kind of passing, uh, and someone invited me to to have a conversation about it. And I kind of sat in and listened for a few minutes, and I was like, I'm going to have to wait on all of this because it was like just unfolding in the court. And I was like, I can't, like, I'm, I'm not going to speculate on something that's, I want to say it's 30 years old. So the guy would have been like 16 or 17 years old, but he's one of the founders of Adventures with Purpose, and it involves at least one family member. Um, there were multiple counts in there, but that's going to be a big true crime story in 2023, I think. Well, it seemed, well, it may, it may not be. Um, it may fall by the wayside, uh, but it did seem like he was sort of baited in and there was a misunderstanding about a statute of limitations. Um, that's what I gathered from it. Anyway. Yeah. You mean, do you mean like from the perspective that he thought the statute of limitations had expired, so he talked about it? Yes. Yeah. Fact. I think that um, because he admits to it or he at least alludes to it, it's enough, like whatever, because I, I read through it um, and it it's ending up being a disaster because uh, it was really, what he did was really bad and the way that he handled it, uh, I feel like the only reason it came out the way it did was because he thought he was untouchable. Um, because otherwise I, I don't really see somebody responding the way that he did in the communication that was there. Yeah. It, it's pretty public and it's from the adventures with purpose, like official communications channels, as far as emails go. It, the person didn't initially who, I don't want to like name a bunch of names here because now you're getting into like uh, there's yeah, victims of sexual assault. Yeah. And there's a couple of different ones that have talked 
and then there's at least one who hasn't talked. You can find it on social media if you want to go look for it. There's some interesting discussions about it. But it does look a little bit like they were wanting him to take some ownership and responsibility. And I couldn't tell if that was like, if he was just an asshole about it, because he is kind of, his responses are not good. Um, and they're very arrogant. But I couldn't tell if they were baiting him or if they really just wanted him to like own up to it and move so that like apologize and move on type situation. That's what it initially read like to me, but then it's resulted in charges. So. I I didn't see it that way. I didn't feel like they were trying to get him to apologize for it. I felt like it was actually surprising that he responded the way he did and that it for what I'm confused about a lot of it. It's really I mean, I want to say it's none of my business, except now he's been you know indicted and uh, the effect that that'll have on adventures with purpose is sort of yet to be seen, but it's not going to be the same anymore. Um, I'm definitely not saying that you know, it shouldn't be a thing because they were doing such great work. I just hope maybe like the other co-founders will keep moving forward. But uh, I do feel like it was, uh, uh, he he's going to get what he deserves by his own doing here, I, I think. Yeah, they've started, they've started to respond and resign like a lot of the other people involved with Adventures with Purpose. See, so I came about that guy and, you know, I'm not naming him either because like, I don't want to do the whole episode on him, but um, I, I ended up finding him years ago because he was producing something else, had nothing to do with adventures with purpose. And I had some conversations with him about something I wanted to do. He had this one really cool thing he did before adventures with purpose. And I was like, how involved is he with that? Cause he was listed as an executive producer and I tried to talk to him about it. Um, and, uh, we got to the point that we were like going to be signing NDAs and there was going to be a pitch back and forth. I, and in all honesty, like just sometimes this happens, uh, nothing to do with this situation. I just didn't want to have anything to do with him, And it had nothing to do with like him being any kind of criminal or anything. It was just like, my personality doesn't mesh well with people who are like very type A personalities. And he struck me as like, like I could tell he was going to like my idea. Uh, and then he was going to take my idea and that was going to be it for my feedback based on the paperwork he was asking me to sign. And I just said, ah, I'll just pass on this. And that was my only interaction with him. Adventures with purpose got popular later and it looks to me like Adventures with Purpose and the other people involved. Because, uh, like, Sam Sam, the Adventure Man, is in there. And there's a couple of other YouTubers. I think they're going to become something bigger and better. Um, and I don't think Adventures with Purpose will be the be-all, end-all of any of that stuff. I think Chaos Divers and, and some of these other groups will come up. And they'll have their own scandals and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> we talked about the Michael Vaughn thing. And I guess I should circle back over there because in Moscow, Idaho, we have four college students that got killed. Apparently by an edged weapon. Um, and it's a tar- some kind of targeted attack. Did you oh, read waiting. about this? Uh, I did. I was waiting for more information because um, that's uh, interesting. And uh, so they were 
stabbed or something to that effect. Because um, I was, I immediately went to, oh, they must have all taken some bad drugs. I that's what I thought. I thought they were all hanging out and either drank or took because something. of the response to an unconscious person. That's what the call went out as, right? Yes, yes. And that's a lot different than like a response to a stabbed person. Um, but, you know, like I said, I was sort of waiting for some more information to come out, but there are four people and they are all, uh, they are all, they were killed apparently. And like you were saying, I guess with a sharp edged, uh, instrument, which could be, usually they say that when they're not sure if it was a knife or something else. Right. Yeah. I, I started listening to like Boise state public radio and, uh, that's like their version of the NPR out there. Uh, they had a real simple thing that popped up uh, on, I think it was on the 15th. Um, it basically just said, uh, police in Moscow, Idaho, believe a knife or other edged weapon was used to kill four University of Idaho students this past weekend, providing an update and describing it as an isolated, targeted attack. But whoever is responsible for the deaths remained at large. The four students, three women and a men, were found dead in an apartment on King Road near campus. Uh, this is at the University of Idaho. Um, the three women were all from uh, Coeur d'Alene, that area. Um, and the the man was from Mount Vernon, Washington. So, it, uh, you know, they identified them just, uh, just some 20 and 21-year-old um, people. Uh, it, it, interesting that that happened. It, you know, that type of situation is like stuff you really um, – like a knife being used to kill four people uh, that close to a college campus late at night. And then that's, it's, it's kind of eerily like a, you know, like a slasher movie or something. It really is. And uh, they seem to be pretty confident that uh, they have been killed at, I think it said between three and four in the morning. Yeah. And that's to me, there's something up with this. Um, I don't know. Do they have any suspects? Did you read if they had any suspects? They haven't released any information about suspects currently. Um, You know, stuff like that always makes me wonder a little bit because they immediately come out and they say, look, uh, the community is safe. And that makes me go, wait, what? Um, Did they say that in this case? That they said that, that they do not believe there is a, any kind of threat to anyone. Um, but then at the same time, local news is flashing these stories about, you know, killer who stabbed four Idaho students still at large. That's interesting to me. Well, but that also means somebody knows something, I would think. Because if they don't know anything about who did it, then it's very reckless to say that the community is not in danger, I think. Yeah, um, but that'll be one. It, it may or may not be on the more interesting of stories. It's a tragedy for four people to lose their, lose their lives like that. It's, uh, you know, there's a lot of components that you have to think about in a situation where four young, vital people are, again, we don't know for sure, but it sounds like stabbed in some type of way because there's a lot of things that have to occur for four people to get stabbed. Right. Because we're not yeah. talking about a gun here. So you're we're thinking, you know, either they were incapacitated somehow. They could have, you know, there's a wide variety of ways they could be incapacitated, including just simply being asleep. Right. Yeah. Um, 
And but you know, up close uh, personal contact to kill someone with a sharp-edged instrument. It'll be interesting to find out what happened because it has to be somebody that had uh, contact enough to kill them with a sharp-edged instrument and enough time to kill all of them without anybody leaving or fighting back or escaping or whatever, right? Because And so that's always interesting to me because that is a feat in and of itself. Unless yeah. they were restrained somehow or, and even then you've got to restrain four people. One of those people is going to react in some way. It seems like. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know what's happening there. I, I, uh, I ran an early theory sort of by you that I'm not going to dredge up here again. Um, you know, I hear about those cases all the time and I immediately wonder, if so, in my opinion, the only way that you go, there's no danger to the public in a setting where this person just killed 20 year olds, where the setting is made up entirely of, you know, 18 to 22 year olds being a college area. It's irresponsible if you don't either have a suspect in custody or have a situation where the suspect is among the dead. Um, and there's a number of ways that that can happen. Um, I immediately think though, when they say that like the killer is still at large or whatever, I assume that it has been deduced that it's not one of the victims, but that could be my bad. No, no, no. I'm not correcting you. I'm just saying that verbiage where you go, you know, the community is safe. Those are the two situations where that, would be true. Otherwise you don't know. Right. Uh, I agree. But uh, it seems to me like they've contradicted that here because they've said yeah. the suspect's still at large, which again, I could be wrong, but that implies that somebody knows something that indicates that the suspect was not also uh, a victim of themselves, I guess. Yeah. Um, and uh, the community is safe, which again, uh, you know, I guess it could just be that targeted, um, but I, unless, I mean, they've got to have more information and I guess we just have to wait for it, but this is going to be, uh, this is a strange, uh, case, a quadruple, uh, stabbing, slashing type thing. It doesn't happen very often. And, um, I am interested to sort of see how that went down just for my own curiosity, you know? Yeah. I'm dying who, to see who the suspect or suspects turn out to be there, uh, Bad pun intended, I guess. A terrible pun. Um, but what we were, uh, what we're doing today is um, we're marking an anniversary of sorts. Uh, this is um, first of a couple of episodes. I've said multiple times we don't have, we just don't have the material for like a whole season. But I did want to circle back around to this case because it has been ten years. It's been 10 years since uh, the serial killer, or killer for sure, known as Israel Keys, uh, took his own life in an Anchorage jail on December 2nd of 2012. Uh, so you just made a very interesting distinction. Would you like to clarify that? Um, the serial killer versus killers? Mm-hmm. Well, unless you made another one I missed. <laughs> well, so... 
I mean, the truth is we really only know about three victims of Israel Keats. Right. And by the standard textbook definition of what a serial killer is, uh, Lorraine and William Courier were killed on at the same time. So it wouldn't really qualify him to be a serial killer. Yeah. Like if, if we believe that's it, that's the end of it. He's not a serial killer. He's just a, a abductor rapist murderer. Because um, he definitely abducts three victims. You know, so he's a serial abductor or serial kidnapper. And I've wondered, um, I, that actually, so it has crossed my mind. I've wondered about, is the reason that he didn't give more information is because he didn't have anything else to give, right? Yeah. Um, I've played out a lot of scenarios as to uh, why he gave up the couriers the details that he, you know, surmised from the couriers. I do have, I believe his account of what happened. And I believe that uh, they, that the couriers were in the farmhouse when it was torn down and uh, they were taken with uh, the rest of the, you know, materials that were disposed of uh, with the people doing it, not realizing there were bodies in there. Right. Um, Yeah. Well, they were just doing a crappy job and didn't want to know what the smell was related to. And, I mean, I, I can't say that I necessarily blame them. Um, but so, you know, why did he give up the couriers? Well, I thought uh, maybe he was pretty certain that they would still be there. You know, he talks briefly about um, the fact that perhaps he will, uh, he had plans, not perhaps, but he had plans to go back and burn the house down if they, if they hadn't been found and the house was still there. Right. And he hadn't been caught obviously, but um, he was caught. So that wasn't going to happen. And so, you know, you have to wonder, well, did his, you know, uh, list of misdeeds begin with the couriers and end with uh, Samantha Koenig. Right. Um, I don't necessarily think that's true, but I do have that in my mind because, uh, he was so detailed in some of the information he gave and so uh, unwilling to get vague. Huh? Oh, your, your word was better. You went with unwilling, but I said vague. Yeah. He was so vague and unwilling to, you know, cooperate further, even though, you know, in weighing out the entirety of the interviews and the information that we have, like when he's speaking with the U S attorney's office and the FBI and um, Anchorage PD and the task force they formed um, it, it doesn't reason well that uh, he played it the way he did. And that could just be because he's not the, you know, brightest bulb in the batch. Right. Um, but it seemed like he could have accomplished way more by giving more details, um, about other crimes that he had committed. He also, it seemed almost calculated the way that he didn't want it to be too many. Right. So I I don't know. I just, I have thought about that though. And it's interesting that we've never really talked about it that much, but you making that distinction. So essentially, if he really is only responsible for Samantha Koenig and the couriers, he's, he wouldn't be a serial killer, right? No, he would not. He'd be a serial kidnapper. And he would be a multiple, he would have killed multiple people. Yeah, he, I don't he necessarily go by the, the textbook definition. And this actually gives me a good sort of outlet to explain that really quick, because 
if you think about the randomness of Samantha Koenig and the randomness of the couriers, how he walked down the street in their neighborhood looking for somebody that didn't have uh, dogs and didn't have children, um, I would say that that mindset is still that of a serial killer, even though even if his victims didn't add up to it because he had absolutely no motivation to kill these particular people, except that he wanted to kill these, he wanted to kill someone. And this was the parameters he went by. Right. Yeah. I think that makes him a predator. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's horrifying. Right. And so that's where one of those things where I do think there are probably more victims. Um, I, I think that, you know, I, in doing this research, I've gone by what Keith has said. Um, I, I'm not saying I believe he's honest all the time, but it opens up endless possibilities if I don't have some sort of parameters on it. But um, his thinking is some, it's the making of some of the cruelest um, intentions that I've ever seen a killer have. Because even you know, in other cases where we've seen stuff, I don't know that we've ever had the randomness of like the courier situation, right? I uh, I think we have. I think we've had the randomness of it and I could skip through, you know, some different crimes in time and point that out. But I think the, I think what we haven't had is the callous recantation of the randomness. Yeah, that could be true. Yeah. Like, I definitely think that crimes like that happen, but you don't usually have those killers. Like, in fact, most of the people I think of when I think of that type of crime, and it depends on how you want to categorize it, multiple people, home invasion, you know, there's like a bunch of different ways that that crime could be categorized that would make it unique. I think... For me, most of those people either were never caught or they killed themselves before they started talking. Well, that could be true. And the way that I categorize that particular situation is you've got a guy who picked a house at random. Uh, He broke in. He hung out there for like an extended period of time. He took his victims to a different location and then he left them there. And they were not found, right? But for his confession, we would have no idea, right? Yeah. And that has fueled my thinking in looking at other cases, right? Because you have to think about all the different um, aspects of, like, the fact that Bill and Lorraine were missing and, like, their case, you know, in and of itself before we knew Keys did it, which... You know, I didn't know anything about Bill or Lorraine Courier before Keyes talked about them. And, you know, that it has formed, it has shaped my thinking, though, on some things. Because without his confession, we would have no idea. They just left their house one day and it there were signs of a break-in. But, you know, the investigators hadn't gotten very far. And they certainly were never going to come to this conclusion. No, they weren't. And that, so... I've been through this twice where like I did 26 episodes on me thinking, all right, he's using these remote camping locations and pit latrines. I came back around and I talked to you again with the cruel summer episodes, which I think was another, what, six episodes, give or take. 
So I've put a lot of information out there about keys and the randomness of it, and I've recounted a lot of different crimes that could potentially be involved with him. I have always wondered, sort of in general, not keys-related, serial killer, serial predator-related, how many crimes happen where when we look at them, we think they're one thing, and in reality, they're something else entirely different. Because that was some, like, and that uses Keyes' words. Because he said, like, you know, some of the things I've done when it did get media coverage is basically unrecognizable. Um, they have no idea what really happened. Right. And I, you know, I've had a, a couple of things. I think one or two of the things that we're talking about have already we've already sort of addressed them at one point, but I had, I've had a couple of lingering cases, uh, particularly in Texas. And, and I think people know this by now. I have an incredibly hard information getting officials from the state of Texas to behave themselves and give out information. Um, I went down a really long path on an unrelated to keys case, um, that I still will pick up and like call. Um, we even had, uh, the, the niece on the show for a couple of episodes and she and I are still in contact and, and she will every once in a while, she'll get like a big new piece of information or I'll get like some new information and we'll share it. And we just had trouble getting straight answers out of the state of Texas. There's a case there, this woman named Ellie Pierce that if Israel keys was not at, you know, his last that we know of bank robbery, wearing a hard hat with blonde hair to sort of tilt public thinking to Jimmy Tidwell, I would argue until I'm blue in the face that Ellie Pierce was the case of, you know, Israel Key's last victim. And, you know, that's only because I can't get all the information that I want out of the local police. I can't even get incident reports. Um, they literally gave me a, a single call sheet, which is like when they, when they took an incoming call about that case and it, it has no information that's helpful to me. Um, and it's such a small department, such a small area that they just, um, they've refused to give me any more information so that I can, I can get some of these other cases off. I did get th this one piece of information that I shared with you recently. Um, this was uh, Mitzi Gay Jones and I'm, I'm going to kind of gloss over this for a second only because her case is strange, but she is a young woman who at the time she went missing had long blonde hair. It does not coincide with keys, unfortunately, like, because the, it won't line up with the bank robbery. Unfortunately, we talked about her in season one. She went missing on March the 8th, uh, 2012. Um, that Mitzi Gay Jones went missing in Texas. Uh, this is a 39-year-old, 5-foot, 120-pound female. Um, she had brown hair that had gray and blonde in it. Um, she had multiple tattoos, including a flower on the back of her neck, a flower on her left leg. Uh, she had a star on her calf. She was last seen in the 2400 block of South New Braunfels, uh, San Antonio, Texas. This is just a few days before Keys is arrested. And so... It's a weird one, this case, because when I talked about it before, I didn't have a, a lot of information. I just kind of gave some sort of uh, glaring overviews, I guess, of, of her case and some, some theories about what had happened. She's 
she's really far south of where um, Keys is eventually arrested in Lufkin, Texas, to the point that like it doesn't make a lot of sense for her to be involved at all um, with what he had going on there because it's all, it's almost five hours away. But um, her case comes up again because I noticed, and this happens sometimes. I don't know if you keep track of these or not. I don't. I showed you like kind of the spreadsheet that uh, is is kept in house. Occasionally, I will go back and like and, and like hunt down information. This one, the piece of information that was new. So she first, the first thing that happened is her NCIC uh, entry changed. So she originally was stated to have brown hair. And if you see the pictures of her, she clearly does not have brown hair in like her driver's license photo or any of that. The NCIC status changed for some reason in 2020 to state clearly that her hair is brown. And then in this weird parenthetical expression, it now says dyed orange. And then the other thing that changed about her case was the circumstances of her disappearance. She was released from the Bexar County Jail on March 8, 2012, after being arrested for prostitution. And I'm pretty sure that this completely rules her out. She's five hours away, and if she was arrested for prostitution, I'm guessing that that lifestyle... Although Keys did have numbers for um, and rankings and contact information for different uh, sex workers on him when he was arrested, I don't think one that's five hours away is necessarily going to be the case. Um, there certainly would still be time to take Mincy Gay Jones, and she has the right uh, sort of possibility the right sort of possibility to have run into him um, if he were actually utilizing anyone engaging in sex work. Um, he says he didn't. He said it was an idea that he had. Uh, she kind of gets ticked off my list. But I just found it interesting that this much – so so she wasn't even reported missing until November of 2015. And so I have, so I have to say, you know, uh, this whole uh, – project on keys it's all been sort of an exploration on you know who the hell did he kill right like we've right. We want to know and this is an interesting one because so she goes uh she was last seen on march the 8th right of 2012 and so um you know we we just that doesn't mean that that was the day that something happened to her. We just know that like after that point, she wasn't seen again. Right. Right. To the extent that like in 2015, her family reported her missing. All right. And so like, we don't know where she went. We don't know for certain that she would have been five hours away. But what we can say is there's a woman who like on basically the day that Keith came into Texas, <laughs> Um, cause this is when, uh, so if you think about what Keyes is doing at this point in time, uh, this is where he flew into, uh, Las Vegas and he drove through, uh, Arizona and New Mexico into Texas for his sister's 
weddings, I believe, right? Yeah, this is he was going over to Wells, Texas. Essentially, uh, he had two sisters who were going to be married at this time. So and that's so what this is. Um, so this is right before um, he was staying in a hotel room with his uh, sibling and he left and he is pulled over by a Texas ranger, I believe, yeah. and arrested. So uh, that happened on the 13th. All right. So while there are a lot of circumstances that have to uh, line up in order for her to end up being one of his victims, it's not out of the realm of possibilities. It certainly is notable that she was last seen on the day that he was basically coming in right before he was arrested. Now, keep in mind, um, the, the way that he ended up being, uh, you know, arrested was they were tracking his movements using the ATM card, right? Correct. And so it, from, for me, it's a little confusing, the Texas part of Key's story, because he was in Texas two times uh, very close together. Yes. And um, I wasn't sure that he had a victim uh, on the second trip there, because it was the first trip where he was gone for a while and he missed his return flight, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I, I don't know for certain, but like, I feel like we would be remiss to not mention her because it certainly would be a possibility, um, you know, a probability, I don't know, but it, it's not like there's a ton of people that went missing in Texas during that very short period of time. Right. Yeah. I can't, I have not been able to even get close to making their paths cross, which with, and, and I'll say this, I really think there's only like one victim here that we're looking for if there is one i think when he left that day there is a strong potential he was going to look for a victim that he had either taken on the first trip and uh maybe dispose of their remains or there's a victim from here um i don't think there's more than that but this um and you can listen to the texas episodes that we have in our feed you can also listen to the cruel summer episodes from the summer of 2021 we did uh, a little coverage of Texas there with some real specific information uh, about uh, those ATM visits and at least uh, one man who went missing there. That was very confusing for me. I think the fact that he had phone numbers for women who were engaging in selling these particular services and that this woman who went missing the day he gets to Texas or is last seen the day he gets to Texas she stands out to me. I've never been able to get a lot of additional information because, um, and, and I want to stress this, her family reports are missing in 2015, but her investigation doesn't begin until May of 2016. So by the time this woman is even really looked for, she uh, Keys has been dead for four years. And she has been missing for an indeterminate amount of time because the last official contact with her is this incarceration that ends on March the 8th of 2012. I can't rule her out. Um, I just wanted to revisit her because she's in there. I want to just tell you something really quick, which actually this is pretty far out to be um – to be saying this at this point, I guess, but let's see. 
So during, um, so from March 8th to um, March 13th of 2012, um, there are one, actually there's a lot. <laughs> so it may um, contradict what I was thinking, but there's, it appears to be six people that go missing. Um, there is in Texas, in Texas. Okay. But hold on. Cause, um, there's a element of missing people in Texas that you have to take into consideration. Yeah. The, um, the border jumps. Is that what you're looking at? There's four yes, of those. There's, there's, there are four of them. I think there's four of them. Yeah. Let's see. One, two, when we say border jump um, on the recording and then we don't say much else, it's because there's an INS case that's been opened by a family member who says my family member was not a U.S. citizen and they crossed over from one of these borders south of Texas. Doesn't mean they're from Mexico. They could be from a variety of places. And they said that they were going to call us when they got to this checkpoint and we never heard from them again. Um, they're border jump cases where we don't, we don't have any information because it doesn't originate in the United States. It's someone calling from outside the United States saying, please help me find my family member that went into the United States. They're very confusing cases and they are very frequent in the cases on the Southern U S border. Right. And so I don't take, I mean, I, it's not that I don't take them into consideration. I just find it highly unlikely that keys is going to have anything to do with that. Um, but so, so taking those out of the equation, there's three of those. Um, and then there's two cases, uh, both happen on March the 8th. So the weird thing about, so the other case that Meg is referencing here is a man named Dennis Rogers and he is covered in right. uh, the, the cruel summer episodes. Uh, the weird part about him is he's a way less than ideal victim for Israel Keys. However, he is between two of the ATM stops and goes missing at a time that would put him on a parallel road from the highways that Keys said he was trying to avoid during that time between the ATMs where he's withdrawing money from Samantha Koenig's account. And, you know, while I... I I would hate for Dennis Rogers to have been a victim of Israel Keys. I I don't know that I really think that that's a that it's likely that he was. We can't not mention this because, like I said, you've got these two people going missing in this very. I mean, because if you look at a map and you think about time and place, it's it's odd, right? Yeah. That you've got these people that are missing, and we're talking about at this point, it's over ten years out, right? Um, Correct. They're, they're continuing to be missing. And that says something uh, yeah. because, you know, they're not just runaways. They're not people who have been found otherwise. And, you know, they, they have elements to them. We know a little bit more about Dennis Rogers' uh, case because there's a little bit more information. Mitzi Jones, she just basically fell off the face of the earth. It's entirely possible that, um, nothing happened to her in March. It's just the last recorded, like, because you said she was released. And so I'm assuming that's what they're using as her last scene date. Yeah. It, it, she's a, it, it, they call it the official date of last contact because the people that were in touch with her that day were officers who would eventually be questioned for a missing persons report years later. Since it's such a big time span, like she's literally reported missing in 2015. 
Because of that, the 2015, the backward scap to March of 2012, that's the closest they have is the last thing we have where we know for sure her bank account was used, her phone number was used, anything happened to her, was she walked out of this county jail. Right. And so I wonder, okay, and you know, you can have an opinion on this. You, I'm sure you do. Um, I wonder that like, if, if that were the case, let's say that, you know, Keys had somehow crossed paths with um, Mitzi Jones, like why not use her like for information to give to the investigators? I see. I'm with you on that. I think most of what keys would have been holding back um, probably involves male victims. I think that would be more something he did not want to get public is for his family and his mom and his daughter to know that he had male victims and what he did to them. At least with Bill Courier, the explanation there is Lorraine was there. I suppose. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm fishing at that point. Like I, that's complete speculation. So I don't. I do not know unless he did something to. If, unless he did something to her that would give away a lot of stuff. She doesn't necessarily like. She never makes it off my list, and I'm really just revisiting I don't her really here. See how she could make it because she's as far as where he was, where she was, the information we have, it is a viable, uh, it's a viable person, right? She's a viable person who might be a victim as far as time and space goes. Um, the other elements of that, like when was she really, when did she really go missing? Well, we have no idea because so much time passed before she was reported missing. Right. Yeah. But you know, as, and I find it compelling and I feel like everybody that investigates crime should find it compelling when you, you whittle down the nitty gritty here. Cause you've got keys traveling from Alaska, uh, driving this specific route through that is traceable because he's making these ATM stops, right? There are only so many people missing at this point in time, right? From, yeah. from that, from where he was, during that period of time. And so, you know, you can't just uh, say no way because it is actually a possibility. Yeah, it is a possibility. And I mean, we would have to know more about her movements after she leaves that jail and where she goes. It doesn't seem like that's going to be possible. No, we're not going to get that information, but we would have to, like, if it exists, we're not going to get it. And I think if it exists, then her date of last contact would be changed. Even if we didn't have those details, I think they would give us like a little something more. But her case is one I have. I have a rolling uh, public records request in the state of Texas for um, constantly trying to uh, update my own request. She would have been 39 years old when she went missing. Uh, today, she would be uh, 49 years old. Well, and if I could just, uh, this gives a nice little... Uh, kind of breakdown here from uh, March the 8th, 2012 to uh, March the 13th, 2012, which was the day Keys was arrested. Today, in 2022, there are 14 people that went missing during that five-day period of time, okay? There's 14 total people. One of them is in Tupper Lake. 
two are in California. One is in Georgia. One is in Indiana. One is in Tupper Lake, New York. One is in Oklahoma. One is in Oregon. One is in Pennsylvania. One is in Tennessee. And then five are in Texas. But three of those are what I would consider like an immigration issue. And so, I mean, I'm just saying, if you look at that, you have to wonder, right? Yeah. I mean, only 14 people went missing during that, or continue to be missing at this point during that that five-day period. Yeah, Texas brings up a couple of interesting things for me because he... Like he spends a brief amount of time down at Fort Hood. We don't have the exact dates. It's during his service. So it's, you know, a decade before this. And and I don't have a lot more on Mitzi Jones. What I do have is two other like weird sort of sets of circumstances to talk about. I actually have a missing person in a Zell. But I want to warn you, the dates don't sound like they match up when I start talking here. I'm going to talk about her. I'm going to explain a little bit of what I run into trying to get the information on her. And then I'm going to lay out one other thing in Texas. Okay. This is a woman whose name is Tammy Cherie Ellis. She is definitely reported missing in May of 2012. She is from Azelle. Texas, A-Z-L-E. Do you know why I'm bringing that up? Why I'm bringing that word up? Azel? Yeah. Well, because that's where the bank robbery was. Okay. So when Israel Keys goes to Texas and these, like Meg said, two confusing trips, he first shows up in Texas and he commits a bank robbery on February the 16th, 2012. And a, I, what I would describe as a fairly massive arson fire. You've seen the, um, the, the pictures of the fire, right? Yeah. Okay. So this is not the, the time he gets arrested. He is going to, Go back to Alaska. He's going to stage everything related to Samantha Koenig's ransom note, including like proof of life, photos, or Polaroids. I don't know how you want to describe those. The The gist of this case that I'm going to tell you about, um, this woman goes missing in Azel, and the accounts of her disappearance, including from the police, are all completely dubious. Um, This woman's name is Tammy Cherie Ellis. She was 24 years old. She had recently dyed her hair bright red. She was five foot, one inches tall and weighed 95 pounds. She has multiple tattoos. She has flames on her abdomen, flames on her upper back, a butterfly in the middle of her back, a tribal tattoo on her lower back, and a skull on her outer left leg. If you go on Charlie Project, here's what you're going to read. It says that Ellis was last seen as a residence in the 6100 block of Big Wood Court 
off of Tenderfoot Trail in Jacksboro Highway in Azell, Texas, on April 28th, 2012. That is the official line and the only line in her police report. So all the information I just gave you, which is her height, her weight, her age, not even her eye color, but her hair color, plus that line is the entire police report. There is a call reference that gets mixed that gets mixed up with it. It's an emergency services call in Azale, Texas on April 28th, 2012, separate of this, where someone calls in to report they hear a girl screaming from a gravel pit behind their home. The police arrive, they go to the house where the call was made, they go to the gravel pit and they clear the gravel pit and they just say there's no person there. And this incident is, for some reason, forever linked to Tammy Cherie Ellis. But the description of the person at the gravel pit, I am not sure it is even close to Tammy Cherie Ellis because it describes hearing a child screaming. Um, this incident report. And it's also from April 28, 2012. And it is a single line. Caller reports a child female screaming at the gravel pit. That is the whole report. Um, I don't know how all of this gets put together where people tell the story. Um, I have gone on and I've, I've, I've perused the Facebook pages. And I can tell you a little bit about Tammy. This area where she lived is right between Tarrant and Parker counties. Both of them have multiple reports of Tammy having been arrested. I don't know what all of the arrests are for. Um, I can just tell you that of the eight or nine arrests that I found, there was assault causing bodily injury and family violence that she was uh, dismissed. That was from February 15th, 2011. I found different accounts of her having been arrested for probation violation related to uh, family assault and what is known as other assault, which I don't, I don't know exactly what that means. Other assault to me, I guess they didn't classify it as domestic violence. Um, the last accounting I have of her uh, she's actually released to another agency. And what I think it is, is I think her probation officer comes and picks her up and, and lets her go. Here's the wild part. There is another Tammy Ellis who lives very close to Azell, Texas. And some of the stories you read online are not Tammy Cherie Ellis. Um, the other Tammy Ellis is not missing, but was also in trouble multiple times. The one account I found in here from the missing persons report shows up on medium.com. They were able to get a snippet of the missing persons report. It's very small. And this report is from 2016. So I want to be clear, we're talking about an incident from 2012. Where are they? the podcast and missing in Texas are cited as sources on the Medium post for someone named Jennifer 
from December of 2021. I'm not going to link to it anywhere. I don't know the veracity of this. I'm just going to use this one little section. Tammy Ellis was also apparently hanging with questionable people in 2012. And this is this person's words, not mine. I'm quoting. In fact, I did find an arrest record for her in late 2010 for battery. And it looks like she did do a couple of months in jail. But without knowing more specifics about what happened there, I don't want to pass any judgment on her for this. So she, so Tammy does get arrested in late 2010. And this is me talking, not the quote anymore. She goes to jail for about two weeks. She goes to trial. The judge releases her on probation for a guilty plea. Um, it looks like it, it says guilty slash no contest. But... So she's on probation, which is why I said her release to another agency in 2011 is actually not her getting out. It's her being released to her probation officer. Um, And then it says, so on April 28th, 2012, Tammy was allegedly known to be at a house on Bigwood Court off of Tenderfoot Trail. This is the exact same information that the Charlie Project reports. It goes a little bit further. Bigwood Court is a dead-end road with just a handful of houses. I'm guessing, again, we don't know for sure that someone had confirmed seeing her at this house, and that is why the police consider this her last known whereabouts. So behind Big Wood Court sits the Dickey Car Sand and Gravel Pit, a large remote area with several bodies of water. On that day, April 28th, a house that sits near the gravel pit called police to report that they heard a woman screaming. There are reports that say the area was investigated and searched by law enforcement when they got that call, but they found nothing. And some reports say that the police showed up at the house that reported it, and they told police that they had walked out to the pit and searched, but they didn't find anything. Police took them at their word and never went back there. I cannot say for certain which report is true, but seeing as Tammy was last seen on that day right near the gravel pit, I think this report is something we can't dismiss. After Tammy was last seen, someone reported her missing and started putting up missing posters around town. They received multiple reports that people had last seen her with a man named Brett Harmon. Um, not trying to throw people under the bus here, but this is popular knowledge among Tammy's friends and family that she was with this Brett Harmon guy. The reports are confusing. Some say that's who she was just last known to be with, and some reports say that she was last seen with him after April 28th. It's also talked about a few times on her Facebook page that she was allegedly with this uh, Brett Harmon guy. She also has a listing in Web Sleuths, and she has a listing in Nick Mix. I'm just going to go ahead and say this right here. The missing persons flyer started going up in the summer of 2012. I was able to trace that all the way back. She's reported missing like late summer 2012. Here's the thing about Tammy Ellis's case that bothers me quite a bit. Tammy Ellis's social media activity stops in February of 2012. She's in Azell, Texas. Her social media stops in February 2012. I cannot believe that I can rule her completely off the list because when I go in the NamUs and I look Tammy Ellis up, and I know you do this all the time and you're way better at this than I am, they have her date of last contact as May 1st, 2012. They report in here that Fort Worth has been investigating her case with a 2013 date. Uh, I don't know if you saw the like dates on there. So I've 
I've tried to get in touch with like family and friends of Tammy Ellis. Um, the pay- so if you go on Facebook right now and you type in her name in Azel, Texas, what comes up is not actually her. It's an there's an active Facebook page where people are openly talking about a suspect or two. And it's it's like a it's not like a remembering her page or anything like that. It like looks like it's her page, but it's not her talking. It's people talking about her still being missing. And they bring up a couple of different suspects. And so this is one of those cases where everybody has a story. We saw this with Holly Bobo. We saw this with Delphi. Um, people say that there are there are pictures of her tied up. And there are pictures of her um, after she went missing where uh, they believe that she is um, being held against her will. And I've, I've often wondered, and this is pure speculation, if this is not a case where uh, this is what it looks like if Israel Keys takes someone. Because all the reports that I can get on Tammy Ellis end in February of 2012. And I completely understand that there are three places on the internet that state that she was seen in April of 2012. But everything I can get on her ends in February of 2012. She's in Azel, Texas. They are consistently blaming someone named Brett and someone named Wayne. Um, and they're, you know, demanding information, uh, this goes from about 2014 to about 2016. And then the information on her page sort of dies off. They have this one weird message um, from September 12, 2014, Tammy Ellis, whoever is on her page, it's some relative. They don't identify themselves, but they state, we got a call today from the FBI. They would not give us a name, but they gave us information that someone had been, arrested and that there would not be a further arrest in this case right now, but that soon uh, they would tell us more about this. There was quite a few people that were either there involved and that her case will be going from missing to a murder, but now they're waiting for some DNA to come back on someone who supposedly gave them a white sheet that she was wrapped in. And then nothing else happens on this page. I wondered if there was a call from the FBI and it didn't say all of that information because that doesn't sound like what the FBI would give out in that type of phone call. But I wondered if the FBI phone call in 2014 to the, to the Ellis family was because they had discovered the same thing I had, meaning the FBI, um, and that is that Tammy Ellis's police reports, Tammy Ellis's social media, and Tammy Ellis's life that's trackable ends in February of 2012 in Azel, Texas. Have you looked at this case? I mean, there's nothing else. I have. There. I can't find. Well, so you say. So what was documented in February of 2012? Um, that she was released from her probation. Uh, and. Is that where we think that like she was picked up or something by her probation officer? There's, it's just, that it's not even documented that she's alive in February, 2012. Her, the social media that she had has now been taken over by family. 
it ended in 2012 being Tammy Ellis. Like there's no social media for her after that. There's a new account created the following year, but that account doesn't have any pictures. It doesn't have any posts. I was just trying to figure out what like uh, definitively occurred in February versus like. There was a court action. It looks like she was released from her probation by a gavel punch. Basically, there, it looks like there was an order in February 2012 releasing her from her obligations to community corrections there. Okay, so that and that's just some sort of public record. Uh, that's the that's the last public record for her. Yeah, and okay. she's not she's not reported missing until uh, May of 2012. All uh, right, and so. And that has to do with uh, the April 28th. Is is that the account of someone hearing a girl scream? Is that where that comes from? Uh, that's the – so the April 28th is – and depends on how you read this. There's people that talk about this online, but it's very hard to read through the spelling and the grammar. But basically the gravel pit scream on April 28th is attributed to her – and then she's reported missing a few days later. But is the gravel pit scream, like the timing of that, is that where they get that day from? Yes. Well, the reason I've never, I've just never looked into this because um, uh, obviously if she's alive in April of 2012, um, she's not his victim. But. At the same time, I mean, I can get behind something concrete, but to me, the I feel like that date had to come from somewhere. Uh, and I, you know, if it is just the gravel pit scream, I, you know, I don't buy that. But if it's something more to that, like her neighbor saw her or something like that, I don't know. I just I've never been able to get. And and I appreciate the fact that there's some sort of court record in February, but it seems like that would be on the uh, paperwork if, you know, if they're going off of just the screen. I'm just confused by it is all. Well, so I was wondering if the being released from probation wasn't just she didn't commit any violations and it was over. So I can't say for sure. I mean, all I know is I can't find enough to speculate that the data is wrong. Oh, well, so the, the only reason she stays on my Israel keys list, I don't have a strong reason beyond this. Well, she's in Azel. I mean, she, yeah, she's in Azel, Texas. It's the right year. And the right three-month time period where no one seems to have had track of Tammy. And then there's this, we got a call from the FBI Facebook message. And it says they wouldn't give names, but that they did get information from someone that was arrested. And they told us they aren't making any arrests right now. And when was that? That's from September 17, 2014. And so you're thinking like maybe that that was with regard to Key's. That would have been in the two-year follow-up. So after Key's death, which is December 2012, all the way to December 2014, 
the FBI did an incredible amount of work to try and see if they could link him to any other crimes. I don't think this person understood the phone call they were getting. I think this phone call would be, can you clarify some of, I mean, the person flat out, they may not have even gotten a call from the FBI. They flat out say on here that the FBI was giving away evidence. And I do not believe that. I was going to say, it almost sounds like somebody just pretended to be the FBI and called them. So they would like stop their crusade or whatever. I definitely believe that in the two year time period after key's death, these people could have gotten a phone call saying it's a possibility that your loved one, Tammy Ellis has been murdered. Um, is there, you know, can you point us to who was the last person to talk to her or who filed the police report and, and maybe doing some verification on paperwork they'd found the police paperwork. First of all, it's in Texas. I've had trouble getting real paperwork on this case and every other source that I've read about Tammy Ellis's case on the internet seems to use the same bad source for their information. Well, she's the only person um, that is specifically denoted to be missing from Azel, Texas. The only person. Yeah. And it's uh, uh, the source that's bad is a May 2012 article from the Azel News just stating that she's missing. And what does it say? It states that she's missing. Tammy Ellis of Azale, Texas, is thought to be missing. And what's the date on that? May 5th, 2012. Okay. Well, her name estate is May the 1st. So. Uh, I mean, all we got to do is get past the date. I mean, I think she would be ripe for this situation. Um, it seems like there's a lot of other underlying contributing factors. I will say that. If we could find some sort of, you know, even just leaning towards verifiable information that, you know, her missing date is more like March 1st or, you know, whatever. Um, she absolutely could be uh, one of Key's victims. Uh, she would be an excellent, uh, her criteria would be excellent for that. Uh, sort of random victim that may or may not exist on his first trip, right? Because we have information on his first trip. And so that was the time that he went and he got his vehicle stuck in the mud. His family waited for him in the parking lot of a shopping center overnight. We right. ended up with information that he had gone into Walmart and purchased a shovel and like, Air freshener. Air, yeah. Air freshener. Um, and, and lube too, yep. <laughs> which is weird, but, um, you know, so there's, there's little bits and pieces here. So, um, because of her location being in Azel, Texas, she is the only person at this point in time who is in NamUs from Azell, Texas, that is reported missing. Uh, that doesn't mean she's the only person that's ever been reported missing. Just right now, she's the only person from Azell. Correct. Okay. I mean, if it it does sound like there's other things that could have happened here in, within her own life, just 
life happening. Uh, I totally agree. Yeah. You surmised it by saying that, you know, she had been hanging around questionable people. There's a story. uh, There's several stories from people who knew her and her family talking about what may have happened to her. That calls odd. (laughs) That phone call is really odd. Um, I think they misunderstood and an inquiry. Like there is no way it did not catch the FBI's eye that there's a missing person in Azell, Texas, regardless of the date in 2012, where they wanted some more information. And so uh, now I will say, so on her DNA, uh, on her name is page, they make a reference to uh, under the circumstances that a Fort Worth police detective named Kyle Sullivan submitted FRS to UNTCHI, which is, that's going to be NamUs. It says case numbers submitted with FRS DNA to UNTCHI are 13-26763 and 13-03618. So two relatives submitted some type of DNA for comparison in case remains were found. And I have now reached out to Kyle Sullivan um, to try and get in touch with him because he was the detective who would have had this. I have the case numbers. I have all of that information. Um, and then I have a Melodia Clark, who's a CID detective, um, and then her boss. I have their information from the sheriff's office. They all have 2012 and 2013 cases on Tammy Shariella. So I'm trying to reach out to them to see if I can't clarify some things. Actually, now I don't know what the parameters are exactly, but um, you can definitely get a positive identification from a parent because uh, your parents are the only two people in the world that are going to have uh, a 50% match with your DNA, around a 50% match. Um, But when you have siblings, sometimes it can take, you know, more than one, but just to make that identity, I, I think it would probably. Well, I, so I reached out to all these people. I did find an email address from a family member who uh, I reached out to them as well. Um, but the deal with her is I will, if she turns out to be something interesting, we will come back and cover her. And I say that because I can't tell yet if there's something interesting to her. I can, I, the only reason she came back up, first of all, I have to always follow back up on my Texas cases because they never give me the information on the first try. And half the time you end up in, um, if it's an open case, and, and this is true with like uh, Ellie Pierce, still Eleanor Pierce's case, um, you end up in a situation where you're communicating with the attorney general's office there and explaining your appeal. And it becomes a court process really quickly, uh, like one step away from a lawsuit, but you won't win a lawsuit in Texas if they just claim it's an open and active investigation. So Ellie Pierce is February of 2012. This case is February of 2012, but I'm thinking Azell makes a lot more sense than like Rusk, Texas, which is where Jimmy Tidwell was. And it is odd that he's the one that sort of gets the attention. Um, I mean, it, it was what was available, right? Um, yeah, they, and even then, you and I, 
didn't completely disagree. I know other people have talked about this, but here's how that goes. Other people like to talk about the NamUs cases or whatever, which is all the missing persons photos that are released from the FBI files that are, you know, in Key's browser cache. But you and I figured out by going through old searches of the FBI VICAP page that all they were seeing there was a single page of him having searched on VICAP. And it was all those names in a row, exactly like they had them for comparison, on the VICAP page. Well, other people have gone with Jimmy Tidwell's The Last Victim because of the hard hat and the hair, where he makes the comment to Jeff Bell that, you know, Jeff asks, how did you get the hair in that picture? Is it a wig or did you buy it? And he says, no, it's free if you take it, which is a pretty creepy comment. It's so creepy. I, I do think that... Because the information in Tammy Ellis's case is so bad, here's what I think happened. I think she was hanging out with some people and maybe not paying, the family wasn't paying as much attention as they usually did. And she's a 20 some year old girl. And I think there's some discrepancies here in when she was last seen and who saw her where and, and whatnot that could probably either be cleared up and completely rule her off my list. Like if like she was known to have been at home in April, then I don't think that anymore. But if that's not the case and they really don't know when they last saw her and it's kind of just generic dates that are being attached when they slap on May 1st and January 1st and 2013 and whatnot, um, then I think, I, I think she is one of the most probable last victims of Israel Keys from the perspective of being real close to where the uh, Annette South fire took place and where the Azell bank robbery took place, and and that would make me that would make me want to investigate that further. I agree. I agree that geographically speaking, and uh, just sort of the overall vagueness of her case right um yeah. hopefully uh i don't know we may we may not be able to find anything but i i do find it interesting so if she truly went missing on april 28th and she's reported missing in may i mean that's a pretty quick uh notice right yeah you know that's the only hurdle i really would have to get past otherwise uh she absolutely could be his victim yeah, so that one, um, I'm going to do some more digging. I did get some more information. Like I said, most of what I'm talking about right now is because either NamUs or NCIC or something else has been updated about them. Um, with Mitzi Jones, I got a little more information about like like how her last circumstances went down. Um, and with Tammy Ellis, I, I actually undid some information because of updates to... Uh, what I could see on her profiles, uh, specifically her, the, both of those were uh, NCIC and NamUs. Um, and that was uh, just the different descriptions that became available and, and where you could see them. Uh, there's one last case in Texas I'm going to cover, and that's going to be it for like this episode. Then I'm going to go back over to the other coast. This is like, okay. I don't know if you remember doing this or not, but like we went real hard looking for couples uh, and we were wondering all along if we were making a mistake and that the couple thing wasn't very likely. 
You remember that? The couple thing has been one of the most baffling elements of uh, Keyes' confession overall, I think. Um, and I've sort of, uh, over time, come to the conclusion that I don't think it's a traditional couple. I certainly don't think it's a couple that um, has the same last name. <laughs> um, and there's a couple of other things that I've come uh, to the conclusion of, but it's really bothered me. Um, well, I've, I've, so I've got, I've got a couple we're going to talk about on the other coast, but while we're in Texas, one of the things I have discovered is that couples and I'll even say twosomes pairs, pairs, they very rarely go missing and aren't accounted for. It does happen. And it's happened for years. Uh, The most common thing that we find is a plane accident, a boat accident, or a car accident, meaning a vehicular incident has occurred. um, And that car goes into water or into the woods and isn't found. Um, or that plane goes down and has a couple of people on board, or that boat shows up and and has missing people. You know, it's interesting, though, um, and this isn't to contradict what you just said, but typically when people go missing in vehicles, a lot of times they're by themselves, right? Absolutely. Um, In uh, planes, there's typically like a pilot and some passengers, um, and then on a boat, if it, if the boat sinks, there's usually like multiple people um, that go down with it. But a lot of times uh, in other circumstances, it's actually really strange for um, a completely intact boat to resurface and like more than one, which would be two, two occupants of the boat both drowned, even though the boat is like completely fine. Yeah. So... That's where we get to uh, – there's not a lot out there on this case, but I'll just go ahead and say I will call this one of the strangest things that I've ever seen uh, for a number of reasons. The, the, so this takes place in October of 2003, and it's in Texas. It's at Lake Travis in Texas. So that's the first thing that makes it weird. The second thing that makes it weird is – the first occupant is a guy named Robert Canuel. And he goes by, it appears that he goes by Jeep or Bob. His obituary reads like this. Uh, beloved husband, father, and friend, Robert Bernard Canuel Sr. He is presumed drowned due to a tragic accident on October 3rd, 2003. He was a happy, loving man who made many friends throughout his life. He will be remembered for the great joy he brought into our lives. The family will receive friends at 2 p.m. on Saturday, November 15, 2003, at the celebration of life service to be held at Cook Walden's Chapel of the Hills on Anderson Mill Road. Bob was born on December 1st, 1943 in Detroit, Michigan. He's survived by his wife, Carol, his son, Rob Jr., and his daughter, all of Austin. He's also survived by his sister, Alice, his brother, William, um, his brother, Dennis, his sister, Doreen, and many nieces, nephews, and godchildren. He was preceded in death by his parents, Eileen and John. Jeep, as many knew him, which is like the, the SUV Jeep. That's his nickname. 
He was loved for his sense of humor and his readiness to help anyone in need. He enjoyed an enormous capacity for friendship and will be missed by many whom he considered precious friends. He served in the U.S. Navy in his younger days. He loved outdoor activities, especially playing golf and watching sporting events. He enjoyed traveling with his family and friends. And he was the owner of BC Developers, a general construction and development company, which he moved from South Lyon, Michigan to Austin, Texas in 1983. He was active in the Northwest Chapter of Business Network International, uh, which is a, a professional uh, business networking group. And he served for many years on the steering committee for Alliance for Infant Survival, the North Texas Chapter for SIDS, which is Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. Uh, in lieu of flowers, contributions may be made to the Robert B. Canool Memorial Fund and should be sent to the attention of Sharon Hopkins at Wells Fargo Bank. So... There's a couple of entries online where people are talking about Bob or Jeep, as he is known. Uh, what caught my attention about him is he is half of a pair. And it's a very, it's a <laughs> pair that's not a pair unless you see that they're a pair. Right. So on the same day at Lake Travis that Bob went missing, Muna Muhammad Haji went missing. She's described as an African-American female with brown hair and brown eyes. She goes by the name Mona, and some agencies refer to her by that name. She has breast implants. She's a native of Somalia, and she moved to the United States in 1997. She's deaf or nearly deaf in her left ear. Her exact age and date of birth are unclear, but her official date of birth as given is January 1st, 1978, which would make her 25 when she went missing. So she's 25 years old, um, but it is clarified by the Texas Department of Public Safety that she could have been as young as 21. And uh, Bob is not. Bob is 59 when he goes missing. If he were alive today, he would be 78 years old. What's interesting about this is Mona and Bob were last seen together on a boat off of the VIP arena in Lake Travis, Texas. This boat was found in Cottonwood Cove near Laga Vista, which is also where um, Ellie Pierce was found, close to there. Uh, the boat was empty. And uh, Bob's truck was found parked at the marina. They have never been heard from again. It's believed that they may have had an accident and drowned on Lake Travis. I don't know where Israel Keys was on October the 3rd, 2003. I am not saying this has anything to do with him. But what I'm saying is, with the truck being accounted for, the boat being accounted for, you got two people in swimwear in October in Texas who just vanish at Lake Travis. They have never been accounted for in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Um, when we found these, I looked into Lake Travis, and uh, there's a very, very small number of people who have gone missing in Lake Travis and not uh, returned, not been found. Um, yeah. And it, I want to say it was like, it was like one guy in 1998 and maybe like a couple of people in the 70s at the same time. 
and then um, I think there there wasn't anybody except these two people um, in 2003, and then there was one in like 2000, maybe. 14 or 2018. So it's, it's very uncommon for people to drown in Lake Travis and for them to not be recovered. Yeah. And so in this particular case, uh, it could have been warm enough in October, I guess, for them to be swimming, but it's always an odd thing unless there was some sort of malfunction on the boat. It's always odd that two people would drown. Yeah. I think, I mean, I feel like, um, I, I understand that there could be cases where like one person is drowning, the other person is trying to help them and they end up both drowning. Um, but usually it's, it's one or the other, unless the boat is sinking or whatever. Um, it's just really strange that like, two people could drown with without an additional thing happening. Now, we skip over this, and I guess I'll just skip over it too. Um, it's considered that uh, they're just called companions, right? These two people are companions. Right. I, it, it, uh, I have un-Israel Keys thoughts related to what might have potentially happened here, and I could go with – he jumps in and has something happen to him and she tries to save him and they both drown. But then I also have something untoward going on here where he's a businessman with a wife and money. And they live in Somalia now. And maybe they live in another country or maybe someone made them disappear I, you know, it's a straight now, and I don't want to jump to conclusions. It is not addressed anywhere that I can see. None of this is addressed. This case, uh, it pops up, and there's about there's about four news articles less than six lines long about this case. Um, MSNBC runs it briefly, KXAN runs it all in 2003, mainly in November of 2003, after it happened, and like right before his memorial service. This case is never cleared up in a way that I go, oh, now I understand what happened. And, you know, it is like the logical sequence of events here is that they drowned, right? But I'm I'm just pointing out from the research I did surrounding, and it was actually a different case that led me to this case. So the research that I did, it says, like, it's really weird for two people to drown at approximately the same time and their boat to be found unscathed. Right. In the, in this body of water, it just, it, if this is the case, it has never happened before. Yeah. So if this is one of those cases where it gets put on my Israel keys list because I was hunting for pairs and couples, you we're sort of bunny hopping with me across a number of cases. And you actually pointed this out to me. Um, and we didn't include it in the original Israel keys couples. Cause I was pretty sure at some point I was going to come across a piece of information related to this case. And I was going to go, Oh, well that makes sense now. And that has not happened. It will be 20 years. 20 years. It'll be 20 years next October. Um, that this case has been a mystery. And to me, uh, again, 
Uh, the bodies are almost always found at the flake. Um, you know, I know that there's some fluctuation in water levels uh, this time, uh, you know, in 2022 with climate change and all the other factors coming into play. Um, I did read some about how there are quite a few. Um, so this lake was made, right? It was uh, flood. It, they flood. Yes, I it's man-made. The army um, department that handles that kind of thing. They flooded an area, and uh, there are trees and things like that um, under the water that could be particularly hazardous to people. Yes. Um, again, I'm just kind of going off of the information that was available and saying uh, it is entirely possible these two people just drowned, but the circumstances are very, very strange. Yeah. And unlikely, even though it is likely they drowned, both of them drowning at the same time is unlikely. There's more than likely something else that influenced the situation. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't necessarily have to be Israel Keys, right? It but, doesn't even have to be any kind of serial killer. It could simply be that this was a chosen disappearance. Sure. Or that they were drinking. I would buy that two people could drown after they were drinking, but there's no information to indicate that, right? Right. All we know is that the boat was found. They were last seen together on the boat, and then they were no longer on the boat. It they hop over the connection there in his... I mean, they don't mention her in his obituary, right? It's, no, she's not. You're right. Which it's makes it weird. News clip. Yeah. Because it seems like if it was like an adopted daughter, it would she would have been mentioned. Well, I even wondered if it wasn't like his son's girlfriend. Well, that would still be inappropriate. Maybe. I mean, I, I mean... There have been times I've been out with my mother-in-law and my father-in-law, weird places. Uh, yeah, but, well, I guess she, I was going to say, yeah, but you're a 40-something-year-old man, which she was at least 21. Um, I, I don't see it. Uh, the fact that she's not mentioned in the obituary doesn't help sort it out for me, making it some sort of benign interaction that, it shouldn't be questioned um, because if she was like part of the family or something, it would have come up. Well, I'll tell you what, they sure as hell accepted the idea that these people drowned because they don't make a single stink anywhere ever. It's not even mentioned. And if you look at their family now, this they're all smiling of, and happy. This is one of those things. Like I can't believe that they successfully ignored it. It, was definitely ignored. Um, and I, you know, I looked everybody up on Facebook, all the family members, everything that I could, as far as I can tell, uh, everybody is smiling and happy and most of them are still alive and they never talk about this. It is never mentioned as an anniversary or there's an investigation. It's not even mentioned when it happens. It's just... Like they're gone. And largely I'm a big advocate for like, this is none of our business, right? Yes. <laughs> like whatever their relationship was is none of our business, but it's just so weird to me that I want to know um, 
especially this far out and especially so if you ever do your own research and you find you find yourself looking for couples that are missing okay there are not a lot to choose from no not that aren't reasonably easy to understand slash solved I would say even the ones that are easily, like you can easily deduce what's happening. I would say even those are few and far between. Correct. I mean, and it, what, and I mean missing, right? Like not couples that have, you know, murder suicide or something like that, but just missing couples are so few and far between. I mean, they really, really are. And. You know, with Keyes, it's a little nugget of information from his interviews with the FBI that there's a couple or a pair or two people that are two of his victims. Now, they didn't, I find, I, <laughs> I find it infuriating that we don't know more information about that because it was right there, you know? Yep. And uh, there's no way to know more information about that. You know, I've heard that uh, it if you just do sort of a passing glance, uh, it's it's hard to even find any couples at all. Right? Or pairs. Like, we've had to stretch just to make pairs out of people who go missing in proximity and time. Right. And so I do think that's one of the biggest things for me because I literally go through and um, I can discount it. Like in this case, it would be like, oh, they just drowned. Right. But at some point we have to be like, well, somebody's got to be the pair. Right. And to me, that would be like a really big deal uh, for uh, a couple, a pair, two people to go missing at the same time. Now this, these people, if you're just looking through missing persons, um, they're not going to be linked together, except I believe uh, the Charlie project links them. And, but like in NamUs, I don't think they're linked. I don't think it's mentioned that they went uh, missing together. At one point she wasn't even in NamUs. It says that Robert and a friend, but they don't name the friend. Uh, on Namus. Well, so she's not named. I don't know that she's in Namus. But anyway, um, so, you know, I've gotten to the point where I'm looking in descriptions trying to make pairs out of people that went missing together. It is a really odd thing for two people to go missing under the same circumstances, like at the same time. I, I do think something is going to come up in Keyes's not that we'll ever know, but Keyes' situation, what what he talks about as his couple that were his victims, I think there's going to be something that's off-putting, whether it's like one was reported missing a different day or like there's going to be something to it. Um, yeah. She you know, is in NamUs. She went into NamUs in February of 2021. So did he. Yeah. So, and hers says, Mona... And a friend mm-hmm. were uh, on a boat on Lake Travis. The boat was not anchored and found floating unoccupied on Lake Travis. An hour after they had rented the boat, their bodies were never recovered. Isn't that strange? It is strange. And according to NCIC, she had a belly button ring on. And that's all. That's it. That's the whole description for additional descriptions. I've seen where she had on like a black and brown two-piece bathing Yeah. Yeah, this is the only additional. It it says he was last seen wearing a t-shirt and shorts. 
it just it sounds like two people who are going out um, boating, but and you know it really isn't anybody's business. But like a little more details could have been helpful. He was teaching her how to drive a boat, um, or to swim, or well, I don't. If know. he was teaching her how to swim, I do buy more so that they drown. I don't feel like that. Well, I guess it's whatever you have, but I don't think a lake out in the middle of a lake off a boat is the best place to learn how to swim. Um, no, no. I've heard, and I've heard people um, drown in that lake often. It's just they aren't gone for 20 years. Yeah, there's a, there are a lot of drownings. That's what stood out to me when we came back to this case was if you go through and just look at late Travis missing person, almost all of them are solved. They're solved they're because somebody down. goes missing and they're found floating or they're found, uh, you know, on the shore or a dive team finds them and recovers them. You know, they have a very proactive area dive team that goes in and looks for people. It could be that like the, the hour floating boat, made it difficult to do that, but they definitely did dive searches for these people. I found some records of them, just no records of like the bodies or any remains being recovered. And clearly they're being put into NamUs 18 years after it happened. I always automatically think that they're doing it because they're reviewing the case uh, against Keith. Maybe I, I know that's not always yeah, the case, I but know. it crosses my mind as well. I so, do. I think to myself, why else would they be putting it in so much later? Yeah. Well, so this is the these are the anniversary episodes of Israel Keys, and this was part one. We do have a part two, uh, and part two is a little more about uh, a pair, um, and it also is about a, a pair of cases that aren't related that I've been working on and even talking to. Uh, cold case detectives in those cases. And actually we'll be talking about those in the next episode, which is part two of uh, Israel keys having been dead for a decade. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by labradicreations.com. You can check them out at labradicreations.com and you can still use the code crime XS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at True Crime Access, or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at TrueCrimeXS at gmail.com, and you can check out our website at www.TrueCrimeXS.com. We'll see you next time.
strange when you're a stranger faces look ugly when you're alone women seem wicked when you're unwanted streets are uneven when you're down when you're strange face come out of the rain when you're strange no one remembers your name when you're strange you're strange when you're strange When you're a stranger, faces look ugly when you're alone Women seem wicked when you're unwanted Streets are uneven when you're down When you're strange, face come out of the rain When you're strange, no one remembers your name When you're strange, when you're strange, when you're strange All right, yeah Strange. When you're strange